Let's prepare our own hearts to hear God's word. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, uh, we do know that our hearts are prone to wander. Father, we pray this morning as we do hear your word read, as we hear it proclaimed to us, please give our hearts, give us uh, humble and contrite hearts. Please give us soft hearts that are ready to hear your word, minds that are able to uh, receive it and understand it, and wills that are able to obey it. We thank you for giving us the treasure of your word, and we pray now as we hear it that you will be with us and guide us and shape us for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I will um, read uh, for us from Luke chapter 9, verse 51 to 62. If you have your Bibles, there should be a um, marker in there already. Thanks, Lord. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely sent out for Jerusalem and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Thanks, Lyle. It's great to be with you again this weekend. In fact, uh, unlike last week where I travelled down from Adelaide, this, this weekend I've been down in Victor Harbour for the whole time and I can see why people live here. It's always like this, I take it, beautiful weather and just gloriously sunny. Uh, but I've been at the Adair campsite. There's a conference that's run there each year called CV and uh, the conference is set up so that people who are thinking about uh, vocational ministry uh, you know, thinking about full-time serving the Lord either overseas or locally as pastors or in some other capacity, youth ministry, they come away and receive teaching and get some coaching and thinking through about where they're heading. So this weekend I've been spending about uh, with time with about 70 people up at Adair who are thinking through those sorts of issues and it's been very exciting. It's wonderful actually to sit down with 70 people thinking about how to make best use of their lives. Uh, so you might like to pray for them over this next 24 hours because many of them are making very significant decisions. Uh, the, the purpose of the weekend is trying to divert people from perfectly good careers into Christian ministry. Uh, so that's the sort of objective of it. 
to try and encourage doctors to stop uh, being doctors and lawyers and accountants and nurses and things like that and uh, to do something else with their life and serving the Lord. So they're big changes that we're, we're talking about. So I'd certainly appreciate your prayers. But I take it what we're doing this morning is the same thing. That is, we're thinking about how we make the best use of our lives in serving the Lord. And that's always the task of what it means to be following Jesus. So let me pray for us and pray for the delegates at CV as we look at God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are the Lord of everything. We've just been singing about that in the song. Uh, Father, we thank you that uh, you're the one who rules heaven and earth, but you're also the compassionate and gracious God who steps into this world in order that he might rescue people. And Father, we pray that we'll have a great sense of both your compassion and your call upon our lives as we meet together this morning. Father, we ask that you'll convict us and strengthen us for your service so that we might live faithfully for you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Regular surveys are done where people are asked who are the professions or the professionals that you trust the most or those who are in different occupations that you trust the most. And also, who do you trust the least. So if I'm asking you who do people trust the least in terms of jobs or professions, uh, if you're having a guess, what would you say? Least trusted. One at a time. <laughs> Just one at a time. I didn't catch any of that actually. Used yeah, used car salesman. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Still at the bottom of the list. Now, uh, is anyone here a used car salesman? Just I would be careful before I proceed at this point. <laughs> I remember when uh, one of the first cars I bought was an old Toyota Corona. And I remember going into the car yard, I was pretty young at the time, and the salesman showed me this car. He said, look, it's, it's got a few years and a few kilometres, not many, plenty of get up and go still left in it. You know? And I said, well, how many kilometres has it done? He said, only 195,000 kilometres. It's just getting run in. And uh, he went through the different details in the car. And I said, well, perhaps I should get an RA inspection done on the car. And he was almost insulted that I would think that his cars would need to have an RAA inspection. So I got one anyway. And he gave me a call the day after the RAA guy inspected the car. And I said, how did it go? And he said, oh, look, he said it was, it was pretty good, actually. Just a little bit fumy. I don't know what that meant, but a little bit fumy, but otherwise terrific, you know. And uh, I didn't have the report at that stage. Got the report the following day in the post. There were four pages of line-by-line details of every problem that this car had. (laughs) And I've never bought a car from a used car salesman since that point in time. And and I guess that partially it's personality, partially the job, but uh, we do associate used car salesmen with spinning the best in a situation in order to try and achieve different purposes. I think it can be tempting for Christians to do the same thing. That is, as we're talking about uh, following Jesus, we can focus on the innumerable benefits, the glorious uh, joys and uh, the grace of God and just state all, all the good things about what it means to follow Jesus, whether we're talking to people who aren't believers yet or whether we're talking uh, to those who are followers of the Lord Jesus. Just always painting the positive, positive side. When you come to this section of Luke's Gospel that we're looking at today, Jesus uh, puts the challenge 
he puts the tough things about following Jesus, the costs, the priorities, the decisions that need to be made. So there's a strong sort of jab in the ribs in terms of what it means to be a dedicated follower of the Lord Jesus. Remember last week, looked earlier in chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says there, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Then when we get to the section today, to chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus sets off on what is a hazardous journey. Verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Literally, he, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He is single-minded in his purpose about going to Jerusalem. It's 100 kilometres from where he is at this point until Jerusalem, and he knows he has a certain death at the end of it. That's where he's going, to the cross and his death. So he says, I'm setting my face to go to Jerusalem to die. Do you want to come? That's what he's saying. Do you want to come? And already you know this is a very confronting call. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, the first thing we discover is that this is a journey where we're confronted with the compassionate heart of God. Look with me at verses 53 to 56, or back to 52. In verse 52, we're told that Jesus sent messengers to a Samaritan village, verse 52. But then in verse 53... But the people there did not welcome him because he was going to Jerusalem. Now, at this point, we dropped right in the middle of a racial um, and religious divide. It's a bit like the uh, sporting equivalent of uh, Hawthorne on the West Coast yesterday. Or if you're a rugby league follower, it's the Cowboys and the Broncos tonight. Or if you're a rugby union follower, it was England versus Australia early this morning. Right? It's this sort of teams with enormous division and angst against each other. Uh, well, here we have it in a racial, religious sense. Uh, Jesus is a Jerusalem Jew. That's what they're associating Jesus with. That's where he's going. And these Samaritans represent a totally different group. And there was angst between the two. If you want more background detail, go to John chapter 4, where you see quite a bit of information on that. Verse 54. When James and John, so these are Jesus' mates, when they saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Now, why didn't they just say, let's push on to the next village? I mean, you would have thought that would have been simpler. Uh, But they ask this question. Now, what lies behind the question? Again, come back with me to chapter 9, verses 18 to 19. Remember, at this point, Jesus is asking, what are the crowds saying about him? Right? And uh, there we read, some thought that he was a prophet like Elijah. That was one of the things that was being put forward at this point. If we went back to the Old Testament, to 2 Kings chapter 1, King Ahaziah sent troops to arrest Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1. And what happened there was that Elijah called down fire from heaven and destroyed 
the troops that had come to arrest him. So that's, that's the background. So people are saying, is Jesus, is he sort of the new Elijah? And of course, Jesus is someone far greater than Elijah. So the disciples say, you're greater than Elijah? Do you want us to call down fire? We'll destroy these people, just like Elijah did. <laughs> that's that's the sort of the background and the picture here. See, James and John, uh, remember what their nicknames were? Sons of Thunder. Quite apt, really. <laughs> these are men with real pastors' hearts. <laughs> Let's destroy these guys with fire. You know, that's, that's who they are. Should we destroy the enemies of God? Well, verse 55. Jesus rebukes them and they went on to another village. Jesus hasn't come to destroy them. He's going to Jerusalem to die for them. And here we are exposed to the heart of God. See, how does God respond to his enemies? He sends his beloved into the world to go to Jerusalem and to die on a cross so that he might embrace them and forgive them and love them. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, uh, when you have gotten stick for being a follower, when you've been clear about the fact that you are a believer, and someone, maybe someone close to you who's not a believer, gives you a hard time because of that, uh, do you sometimes feel like doing the equivalent of calling down fire on their head? <laughs> do you, do you know, it's easy to feel that way, isn't it? About those who oppose you. But Jesus, that's not what he's come to do. He has come to die for those who oppose him. Jesus died for a nation like Australia, where 95% of our population have no regard for the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to give his life for them. And he calls upon us, if we're followers, to have that same heart, that same soft compassion, even when we're under the hammer for being followers of the Lord Jesus. Jesus, the one who goes to Jerusalem to die. And then having sort of set the scene for the journey, the camera, as it were, James is here with the camera this morning, but the camera, as it were, pans to a different sort of spot. And what we have is an encounter with three would-be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we go. And they're tough words. They're three brief encounters, and they're tough words for those who would follow Jesus. Let me just make a couple of observations before we look at each of these guys who uh, would, would follow Jesus. The first thing is, what you discover in verses 57 on, is that uh, all of them are anonymous. So we're not given any names, uh, no backgrounds. These are faceless people. Second thing is this. Uh, the response of these three who are challenged is totally left up in the air. So Jesus puts the hard word on them, and we're not told what they do. And I think that's deliberate. That is, you're meant to be provoked in your thinking and almost, at one level, read yourself in and think about your own response. And then the third thing is, uh, when you look at each of these three encounters, on the face of it, Jesus seems so unreasonable. He seems so hard, and the words seem quite tough. 
And I think the temptation that Christians have when they read this is to water down the words of Jesus. Make them less than what Jesus actually says. Let's uh, take a look at it together. So candidate number one. They're walking along the road and a man says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. That's a good start, I would have thought. Let me say, if people come to me and say, Paul, uh, I, I really want to become a Christian. How do I do it? You know my normal approach? I normally tell them how to become a Christian and follow Jesus. That would be my approach. Notice what Jesus does, though. He launches into what seems like a, a sort of an ad for National Geographic. It's, it's almost a David Attenborough impersonation. Isn't it? Look at it. Verse 58. I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, Foxes have holes or dens and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is saying, do you want to become a Christian? But have you thought seriously about global warming and climate change? It almost feels a bit like that, doesn't it? In terms of what... So what is Jesus driving at at this point? What he's saying is, have you weighed the cost? Do you understand the implications if you're going to be a follower of mine? Even the animals around us, the foxes, the birds, they all, they all have places they reside in. They have dens, they have nests. It's a, almost a law of nature that every creature has a place they can lay their head and call home. But Jesus says, I have nowhere to lay my head. And if you follow me, you'll be in the same boat. That's the call. Now, does this mean that you cannot own your own house or live in a home? My guess is if that was the case, most of us here are in a slight bit of trouble at this point because most of us at the end of the day are going to go home to a house, uh, a bed. We have a place to call home. Uh, so is, is Jesus trying to rule out that sort of possibility? I don't think that's the case, but I also don't want to undermine what Jesus says at this point. And I think he's attacking the whole question of where our security lies, where our, our trust is, where our home is. I've got friends who are currently missionaries in China, the Broxholms, and they, uh, when they last came back on furlough with their children, I asked them, you know, where do you now feel home is? Yeah, in Australia or in China? And the longer, of course, people are out in the field, the harder it is to sort of work out that question. And they said, you know, in a way, neither is home. And, and in fact, what it makes us feel is ultimately our home is in heaven not in this world. And I take it that's the sort of point that Jesus is making here, that our focus is on our security and hope that is in God and his promises and being with him for all eternity and not in any place in this world. This is not where we get our security from or our confidence or our hopes. And then I think you can even stretch it beyond that. That is what what competes uh, for your affection? What, uh, where do you put your hope and your trust? 
some uh, here may be struggling because they're not sure about how they're going to live into the future. Uh, maybe uh, the current you know, financial situation or your economic circumstances places you under enormous pressure. And you're tempted to think that actually your security is in what you have. Which, which, of course, Jesus is saying cannot be the case. Your trust must be in him and his promises and his hopes. And maybe, and as I look here, there are a few of us who are ageing. Um, and often we cling to health or the security of, of living well into our old age. But can I tell you, you're not going to remain healthy. You'll get sick. And you'll have hip replacements and knee replacements, and you'll sag and bag and bald. You know, it's sort of—it's just the way of nature. It's true, isn't it? Gravity always wins. Um, it's just the way it works. And our hope is in heaven, not in those sort of things. There's a couple uh, who used to be in Trinity in the city called—and some of you know them—David and Kay Crawley. David died actually about a month ago, but when they were in their early seventies, they were trying to work out how they would usefully use their retirement. And so they decided they'd go to the north of Pakistan to work with Afghan refugees coming across the border. Now, if you know that area, it is a tough area for anyone. Uh, but for people in their 70s who were used to a pretty you know, reasonable standard of living in fairly cosmopolitan and relaxed Adelaide, going to the north of Pakistan is a bit of a change. Uh, but they thought they could teach English to these Afghan refugees coming across the border and share the gospel with them. I remember when they were interviewed at the front of church before they headed out, and Kay was asked, what, have your, what do your friends think about the fact that you're going to Pakistan, to the north of Pakistan, at your age? And Kay said, well, one of our friends said to us the other day, you know, Kay, you could die in North Pakistan. And, uh, and the interviewer said to Kate, what did you say back? She said, I said, I could die in Adelaide too. <laughs> that is, there's a good chance she will die. Yeah, that's the way it works. Her trust is in Jesus, not in the packaging that goes with that in this world. Jesus is challenging that sense of where our confidence and our trust is. Candidate number one. Candidate number two, verse 59. Jesus said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, there's a debate here about whether uh, we're talking about a father who is dying and the guy is saying, I really need to stick around and look after him before he dies. Or are we talking about a man who's just died and the guy wants to stick around for the appropriate acknowledgement of his father and tending to his burial. Now, at one level you can't tell from the text, although on the face of it, it seems like the father is dead and the son wants to bury him. That is the way you'd read it naturally, I think. But whatever the case, isn't it so reasonable to request to be able to stay and bury your father? Don't you think that's fair? Appropriate? What a reasonable request. And Jesus seems so unreasonable. Verse 60. Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
Now, Jesus is the one who at Bible College would fail Pastoral Care 101 at this point, all right? And I'm not trying to be blasphemous, but you understand the point that I'm making here. It, this is not Mr. Sensitive, really. And Jesus is he's not saying mistreat your parents. Never at any point did Jesus countermand the instructions in the Old Testament about honouring parents or loving parents. And that's clearly not the case here. But he is saying the kingdom of God is more important than any other social or family obligation. That's what he's saying. You cannot put your family above Jesus. That isn't an option. Now for us, what does that look like? I think in some contexts when we're talking about our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be a social taboo. Uh, We'll be regarded as uh, people inappropriate because we talk openly. Or maybe it'll be a situation where you can talk about spiritual things. I, I actually think in Australia we're, enable, we're able these days to talk about spiritual things in a general sort of sense. As soon as you start talking about Jesus being the only way to God, then you're in trouble. As soon as you say there are many different options, but only one true option happens to be Jesus, that's when you have conflict and confrontation, it seems to me. Uh, it's a social norm that you're not meant to cross. As followers of Jesus, we will do that. Not, not with aggression or um, aggro, but in a settled sort of way. It'll mean making decisions that sometimes even those close to you and family won't understand. When uh, Sue and I, we finished university, we both had law jobs. When we told our families uh, that we decided to stop practising law and go into full-time Christian ministry, uh, it was very tense, very tense. And uh, my parents, I remember sitting down with them and explaining it to them, they were just angry. There were four children in our family. I was the only one who'd finished high school, yet alone gone to university. And my father said, if you do this, you are wasting your life. If you do this, we will never come to any church that you pastor. We will never come to hear you preach. Don't ever talk to us about what you believe. And now, go. <laughs> it, was that, it was a very difficult time at that stage. Now, God in his kindness changed that over the years and he was at work in my parents' lives. But do you understand, you can never put your family above the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not saying they're always inconsistent, but it's clear that the kingdom of God is the priority for those who count themselves as followers. Jesus lays it on the line with this man. We're not told the outcome. Notice what he says. Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Uh, Sort of a riddle in a way, isn't it? It, it, I think he's saying leave the spiritual dead to bury the physical dead. But, But for the follower of Jesus, the high priority is proclaiming the kingdom of God. This is the urgent task. So the urgent task is that people who do not believe in Jesus hear about the Lord Jesus Christ because otherwise they face a Christless eternity and there's nothing more significant than that 
follow Jesus. Don't get distracted. Then we come to candidate number three, verses 61 to 62. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Okay, what could be more responsible than saying goodbye to your family? I mean, I've got children in in their 20s uh, who've only just recently moved out of home. I want you to imagine that when they're living at home, my 24-year-old son suddenly disappeared for a couple of days. I didn't know where he'd gone. Didn't have any message. I'd be frantic with worry. Let's say after a couple of days, I got this email uh, from Ben who said, Hi, Mum and Dad. Uh, Didn't have time to tell you that I felt compelled by God to go in the mission field. I'm now in Ethiopia. Hope you're well. Okay? (laughs) I'd probably be a bit miffed at this point, you know? Uh, Not thinking he'd done the appropriate thing by his parents. Here's a man. Let me go back and uh, say goodbye to my family. Seems reasonable. But then Jesus uses the example of the farmer. No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. If you're plough, now I've never farmed, I know nothing about farming. Some of you probably do. But I take it that um, it's much smarter to look ahead where you're going to plough rather than look behind at what you've ploughed. You know, uh, you're likely to get a much straighter line if you focus on what you're doing. Or, or if you're not a farmer, have you ever driven with someone in a car who the driver keeps on looking over their shoulder at people in the back seat while they're driving? It's very unnerving uh, <laughs> and uh, can be quite unsettling. The same sort of idea is being conveyed here. Uh, what you've got to do is look ahead and keep yourself focused on where you're going and not be distracted uh, by the things in the past that might hold you back. Uh, I've got a friend who, when he became a Christian, uh, he was from an overseas country, and his parents arranged uh, for, in a different religion, his parents arranged for a pig's head to be deposited at his front door as a sign that he was the equivalent to them, cut off, abandoned. There is a man who because of his convictions in Christ, had to set his face forward. He didn't abandon his family, but they'd abandoned him. But he wasn't going to allow that reality to stop him following the Lord Jesus Christ. He kept going, and he keeps going even today. Perhaps for you, it's um, sin in the past that weighs you down. Uh, Things that you recall that you haven't properly brought to the foot of the cross and experienced the profound forgiveness that God has for you. Or maybe, as you sit here today, you can remember a day when you were ploughing and looking ahead, and now you find yourself in a situation where you feel more like you're applauding the farmer who's ploughing ahead. There are lots of ways in which you can look back. Following Jesus... It's not just a hobby. It can never be a hobby. It must be the driving motivation for your existence. So what about you? Do you call him Lord? We encounter these would-be disciples 
And the picture here of discipleship in these verses is one where there is focus, exclusion of other things, one where there is pain and cost associated with following, one where there is sacrifice, one where you embrace the reality of maybe being treated as a cultural oddity in the country in which we live. Do you, do you think that way about following Jesus? Being a Christian is, is like being into extreme sports. You know, do you ever see those people who put parachutes on their backs and run and jump off cliffs? And you think, that is just crazy. You know, like, can you ever imagine doing that? You know, the parachute, jump off a, or off a tall building in the middle of a city. Okay. Now, let, let me say, being a disciple is about being into bungee jumping. You know, uh, it is an extreme activity, not for the faint-hearted. That's the point that Jesus is making here. And yet I suspect that for us, uh, the challenge is uh, that it becomes something that squeezes in to the edge of life. When our family used to go on holidays and uh, we're taking the car, packing the car when you've got three kids and a station wagon is a challenge when you're trying to take everything away for three weeks. So what I tended to do was to put the big things in first, you know, the suitcases and the bikes and the cricket gear and the, you know, all the, all the big stuff would go in. And then what you'd do is you'd squeeze the soft stuff in around the edge, you know, the dunas and the pillows and, you know, that sort of approach. So you can maximise your packing space as you go. I think for many of us, discipleship can be a bit like that. Uh, what we do is we put the big things in our life in first and normally there are st- the sort of priorities are established by the world around us. You know, the, get the big things in the career, you know, the house, um, the priority of family. It's interesting that uh, in Australia, when you ask Australians, non-Christian Australia, what the most important thing to them is, they say family. Um, when you ask Christians the same question, they'll say Jesus and then family. See, the, the potential competing idol here is quite powerful, I think. Um, easy to put the big things in first, the sport, the good financial plan for the future, all those sorts of things. See, I'm, I'm now in my mid-50s, right? So I'm thinking, do I have enough to retire on? You know, have I got a good financial plan in place. That could become a preoccupation for me. Yeah? Trusting in Jesus, the big things, often are the things the world says are important. But Jesus says the priority of the kingdom, make sure that, that is the thing you put in first and understand that that will be costly, challenging and confronting. So let me ask you a, a pointy question at this point, and one you, you only need to answer uh, for yourself. Can I ask you, when was the last time you made a really costly discipleship decision? One that hurt. One that cost you face in the front of, front of friends, where you lost face. One that was financially the equivalent of one of these three disciples, excessive and, from a wisdom point of view, stupid. One where, you know, one which was an extreme decision 
that really hurt. When was the last time that that happened? I'm, I'm not saying the point of discipleship is to suffer pain or to pay amazing cost. For, that's not the, we don't earn our way with God. But I'm saying being a follower of the Lord Jesus will lead to extreme behaviours in your service of him. So when was the last time you made a decision that really cost? You see, discipleship isn't like packing my car for holidays. It doesn't get squeezed in around the edge. Discipleship doesn't just have accidental sort of consequences. Disciples choose to pay a high price because they're following the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the call. It's easy, isn't it, to water down the words of Jesus? So unreasonable. Jesus, he is the one we follow at the expense of everything else. That's the call. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, do, uh, we thank you that here in Luke 9 we have some of the most confronting words in the whole of the New Testament about what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that then it, it's not just us paying a high price. We see Jesus, the one who has compassion on his enemies, going to Jerusalem to die for them. And Father, we pray we'll be those who take up our cross. Uh, we'll be those who see the all-important and dominating priority of being disciples of the Lord Jesus. Father, be gracious to us as we work out these realities in our own life and help us to encourage one another as we just work out the implications of discipleship. Uh, help us be willing to pay the high price because of our overarching concern that the world will know about the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we commit ourselves to you. We pray that uh, your word and spirit will flourish in this town and that we will be servants of that enterprise. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.